Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek podcast. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who happen to have children on the autism spectrum. Join me, Elizabeth, and my co-host Vicki as each week we talk about Star Trek episodes, both new and old. Are you ready for the adventure? Come join us on Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we're talking about Strange New Worlds, Season 1, Episode 8, The Elysian Kingdom. So, Vicki, what did you think of this episode? I actually liked this episode. It was reminiscent of the original series and Next Generation, but in a good way, whereas last week I thought it was in a bad way. Although, I wonder, I don't know how much of the audience is just watching this show and has never watched the original series or TNG, so I wonder how they'll take it. What in particular reminded you of the original series? The the original series and TNG. It was like a holodeck story from TNG. And it just always seemed like the original series, they were always in some kind of situation where they were in different costumes. Yeah, I I agree. It did remind me of a a holodeck gone wrong kind of story. Yes. Also, at the beginning, and actually, now that I think about it, really, it's the same premise. It also reminded me of the Rumpelstiltskin, and you know I don't remember episode names, the Rumpelstiltskin episode in Deep Space Nine. Yes. I think that was Dramatis Persona. I don't remember, but it was kind of the same premise. No, no, wait, let me think. No, Dramatis Persona was the one where they all took on the personalities of people who were, like, involved in a conflict with each other. What was the Rumpelstiltskin one? I'm thinking it's something to do... If wishes were horses. That's what I was going to say. I I was kind of thinking it had something to do with wishes, but I couldn't remember. Yeah, I think that's the one. And speaking of Deep Space Nine, did you see who the author of the book was? I saw it in a tweet. Pretty cool. Yeah. For those who may not have seen that, the author of the book that this whole storyline is about, and we'll get into that in just a moment, is Benny Russell, who was the author that Cisco embodied in the episode Far Beyond the Stars, which is one of the finest Star Trek episodes ever, in right. my opinion. Right. I find it difficult to watch. Yeah. Painful to watch sometimes, but it's brilliant. Yes. You know, I don't usually read or listen to anything before we record. Yeah, neither do I. And I just happened to, I saw it in a tweet. But I don't know that <sighs> I would have seen it. Even when I saw it in the tweet and went to look for it, it was hard to see. Yeah. I like looking at the authors of books because um, it's like that episode of Doctor Who where we first meet Clara and she's reading a book by Amelia Pond, except that she's, what was her author name? Amelia Williams. Instead of Amy Pond, she's right. Amy, Amelia Williams, and she wrote the book that Clara's kids that she's governess for are reading. I like that. I just think that's kind of fun. So. And usually when they show us a book cover, I know I'm supposed to look at it, but I don't think yeah. I would have been able to read that. <laughs> yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about this episode. This episode was a pretty straightforward, fun little story. This didn't have a whole lot of heaviness and not a weight to it, except for the part about Rakia, who is uh, Dr. Ambega's daughter. So we start the episode where Dr. Ambega is talking about trying to find a cure for Rukia's disease. And Rukia is getting tired of being in the buffer, as any child would be. And she wants to stay out longer. She wants to see his quarters. She wants to explore the ship. She wants him to finish the book they're reading, even though they've read it over.
over and over and over again. She wants him to keep reading. And he keeps putting it off and putting her back into the transporter buffer because her time is running out and he hasn't found a cure. Right. And I don't know that we were aware of that. It kind of sounded like when we first found out about her that she could just stay there as long as he took her out every once in a while. Well, I I did get the impression that eventually, you know, every time he took her out of the buffer, the disease... Oh, true. Yeah. Continued its course. Yeah. So over time, eventually, with the taking her out of the buffer, I mean, it, you know, he's chewing up what little time she has left. Yeah, I guess. But you're yeah. right. Up to this point, it, there didn't seem to be as much of a ticking clock as right. there was in this episode. So anyway, so he he's reading a book to her. And it's a fairy tale with, you know, kings and queens and archers and wizards. And he puts her back in the buffer without finishing the story. And she had actually said that she wanted to have a different end to the story she wanted to change the story and he told her well when you grow up you can write all the stories you want which i thought was you know a great way to respond to her because he didn't want to have to spend the brain power on making up a new ending for her when he's trying to find a cure for her and also giving her the hope that she would become an adult so as a parent i thought that was a good answer yeah (laughs) so anyway then he goes back to work trying to find a cure and he's exposed to some kind of chemical at first, you know, we think everything is okay. And meanwhile, the ship is in a nebula. So this is one of the reasons why he has time to work on his experiments to try to find a cure is because they're not doing anything except just exploring the nebula and taking sensor sweeps and stuff. So there's nothing going on. When they try to leave the nebula, the ship is trapped and Ortegas is injured. So Dr. Ambega is called to the bridge. And when he arrives at the bridge, he is suddenly plunged into his daughter's fairy tale, which I thought was really interesting. And at first we think, oh, it was the exposure to the chemical. And he's confused and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And then after that, things just became a lot of fun. I thought it was hilarious. There's several times I laughed out loud. Right. I thought the character that the captain played, who was like a weaselly little character, he was having so much fun being over the top on that right. character. Yeah. Everybody was having fun. It was a lot of fun. I agree. Everybody was characters from the story. Yeah. You know what? I will say this. When Lon showed up as Princess Thalia in her huge dress, all glittery dress, yeah. it occurred to me that the Star Trek folks and Paramount would make a huge amount of money if they made the material that they used for these costumes available for people to purchase to create their own cosplay costumes. I'd buy that material in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> it's all shiny and pretty. They do, so I hope if any Star Trek or Paramount people are listening, you need to open up a store where you just sell the material that your costume people are using from the costuming right, department because right. it's cool stuff. Anyway, there's my little aside for Paramount. <laughs> see if they listen. So the whole story is essentially trying to figure out what's going on. And Dr. Ambenga tried to get through this fairy tale and determines what's happened with the crew. And he does manage to get a hold of a tricorder and a sensor, and he figures out that this crew's dopamine levels are uh, are elevated, but not his. And everybody has a different role. You know, Chapel's sort of like the local hedge witch. We've got the captain is his cowardly chamberlain, and Ortegas is his bodyguard, who's a skilled swordsman, and Una is an archer in the forest. And then we see Hammer, whose character is a wizard, but Hammer actually, like Mbenga, realizes something's gone wrong. He is not part of this fantasy. He's not totally buying into this the way the rest of the crew is. Hammer's right. like, Dr. Mbenga, what's going on? So between them, they come together and they try to start sorting out what's going on. And then we meet the villain, who is Queen Neve, 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 who's played by Uhura. Wonderfully over the top again. She was having a good time. Also with a cool dress. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so the whole point of this story is to get the Mercury Stone, which did you figure out what the Mercury Stone was? Because I didn't. 
No, I didn't. I didn't figure out. You know what? I kept thinking some one of these characters knows what's going on. And they're just playing along and they're observing and they're having fun. Because that's what like was going on with the nebula, why they couldn't leap. And I thought something in the nebula was playing one of these characters to figure something out. Sort of like, um, do you remember the episode where the little girl's imaginary friend comes to life? Yes. She gets on board and she's trying to essentially understand the culture of the Enterprise. But because she chose the role of this imaginary friend, she's trying to understand it through the eyes of a child, which is a little bit of a different perspective. So that's what I was kind of thinking it was like. Like there was something in the nebula that was embodying one of our crew members. Because we saw several crew members who were not regulars, whose names I'm not even sure I know. And I thought maybe it was one of them. But it turns out this mercury stone that is essentially the mug Guffin in the story is Mbenga's daughter. You know, when he finally figures out she's the deal here, and the story was actually changing as things moved along. Things had changed, and he realizes this is what she had requested, and so somehow she was connected. He went to find her in the buffer, and she wasn't there anymore. And then, so he went and found her in his quarters, and she was like, I could see you. You were playing so well. And she's all dressed up like a princess. Really, I thought it was really interesting up to that point, and then it started to get a little, I don't know, I kind of was kind of like hmm, <laughs> as we went forward. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. There is a life force in the nebula. Mm-hmm. Hammer started going off about spontaneously developing, erupting consciousness or something. I didn't think that was necessary to the story. What did you think of that part of it? I don't even remember it, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. I thought it was an unnecessary part of the story to try to explain how this consciousness somehow showed up. And when Dr. Mbega met Hammer, Hammer explained that he actually sensed the consciousness but it was so powerful and difficult that he shut it down and he couldn't sense it again because it was going to hurt him. So we knew then that there was this consciousness there. So he gets in there, he talks to his daughter and he realizes his daughter is free of the disease, but it's only because the consciousness in the nebula took the disease away. Right. But as soon as she left the nebula, the disease would come back. So the consciousness said that she would keep the daughter there and keep her free of disease. And Mbenga agreed. And this is where I kind of was like, hmm. <laughs> Well, I know I had a hard time with it because there was no time to think about it. He was like, "Oh, okay, you know, yeah, <laughs> okay, never see you again. Have a good life." <laughs> That's how yes, exactly. I was thinking, as a parent, would I just trust the non-corporeal entity in the nebula who says, "Oh, I'll take care of your daughter. Really, I will." I had a hard time with how quickly that all happened. Maybe if they cut the story shorter and had more, a little more time on this. Yeah. I agree. That would have been a good thing. And maybe if, I think also, if they cut the story shorter and if the entity had freed the rest of the crew from the fantasy so that he could actually talk with them about it and have that conversation about do we trust this, don't we trust this, well, you know, what is, you know, I think that would have been really helpful. That way would have been sort of examined all of the perspectives that come to, oh, let's just hand our daughter over to a nebula. Right. And then he could have still made the decision after being fully informed by all the perspectives that we know have to be in place. So that was kind of where I kind of went, hmm. Okay. Um, but then he, like you said, he decides very quickly to allow Rukaya to go with the nebula. And so then Rukaya 
disappears into a glowing light and then reappears moments later as an adult. I'm so glad they did that. I am so glad. Because I was not happy with the way they did the scene before with him losing her. So I'm so glad they added this part. Well, and I was sitting there thinking, (laughs) wow, they are not doing well with kids this season. (laughs) Let's go ahead and feed that kid to a computer and we're going to feed that kid to a nebula. I agree. By having her come back as an adult. Now, this also could, this is why I still struggle with this, because that also could have been the fantasy created by the nebula. True. So, but it gave us some suggestion this all had all turned out okay. So she came back as an adult, and she came back to tell him that he made the right decision. That she and Deborah, who she had named the entity in the nebula, after her mother, who I guess is gone, Mm-hmm. She and Deborah had been having a wonderful time creating stories, and now she was an adult, and he made the right decision, and everything was good. So there we go. Anyway, so after then, after she left, then the fantasy was over, which is part of the reason why I was kind of like, how do we know this wasn't part of the fantasy? Because after she left, then he all of a sudden he, you know, sort of comes out of it, and he's back in his Starfleet uniform instead of his king robes, and Hammer is in his quarters, who had come with him to figure out what was going on. He's no longer in his wizard's robes. He's now in his Starfleet uniform. But here's a question I have for you. Why doesn't Hammer remember what happened? That's what I was wondering. And, you know, in his log, he said something about nobody remembers. And I think that's the entity's doing. So it sounds like nobody remembers because the entity made them not remember. Well, and that makes sense from the standpoint of none of the crew had any idea what they were doing. It was only the doctor and Hammer who were sort of like, we're in this fantasy and this isn't right. The rest of the crew were totally bought into the fantasy and believed that they were the characters they were playing. Right. I actually would have really liked it if Hammer remembered because that would have been a bond and a connection between Hammer and the Doctor. I mean, one of the things that we see with these episodes are these characters building connections with each other, like threads coming together. And that would have been a thread between those two characters who don't actually often get an opportunity to interact with each other. Right. And I was disappointed that Hammer didn't remember either. But even though he doesn't remember, it sounded like the Doctor was going to have to tell the story, obviously. Yeah. So he's going to find out that he was the only other one that wasn't affected, and he's going to find out that he helped him. So maybe it will create, probably not the bond that we would have gotten if he did remember, but maybe it'll create some sort of bond. Agreed. And the reason that he's going to have to tell this story is because all the crew recognized that there was a five-hour gap in their logs, in their memories, and, you know, something happened for five hours and they have no information as to what to happen except the doctor. So he will eventually have to explain that. But yeah, I was disappointed that Hammer didn't remember because... You know, as I thought about it, it would it would just would have been that another great connection. Yeah. You know, Hammer's connected with Uhura now because, you know, the help that she gave when they were being chased by the Gorn. And the doctor's connected with Una because she helped him find the necessary power to keep, you know, keep his daughter in the buffer. So we've got all these wonderful links together, and that would have been a nice link between Hammer and the doctor. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, other thoughts? Have I missed anything? No, about, I don't. No, I, don't. I mean, it was a pretty straightforward episode. Yeah, I can't think of anything you missed. I was actually also surprised, I will say this, that Spock was fully involved in the fantasy. And, you know, some of his Vulcan powers didn't help him recognize it. You know, his fabulous brain. But in a way, that was fun, too. He made a great evil character, by the way. Yeah, he has the best voice for that kind of thing. Yes. He does. Yes, very true. 
And then, of course, Hemmer, who was the comic relief in this episode, because, you know, he was aware of what was going on, but everybody around him was like, oh, is this magic? And he's just magic of science. science, Let me show you my powerful wizard powers. Right. (laughs) You know, the doctor's trying to figure out what's going on. Very deadpan. And Hammer was the comic relief, as was Captain. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. I did, too. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give this one? I'll give it an 8. An 8? Okay, I give it a 7. Good, strong 7. Last week, I gave it a 7, but this one... I did like better. Really, all they had to do last week was to make Captain Angel a little less mustache twirly. <laughs> and instead of inciting the mutiny by talking directly to the pirate crew, they could have just pretended to discuss it quietly amongst themselves, knowing the pirate would overhear it and it would be their idea. Yeah. You know, I think that's all they would have had to do to not make it so ridiculous. <laughs> yep. Little things, little things. But you know what? We don't know what goes on in the writer's room. I'm sure there are all kinds of different elements to the stories that they got, they pitch when they're all together and they before they land on where what we actually see. Right, so right. So maybe there was even more mustache twirly stuff that they got rid of, and we thank them for that. Yeah, <laughs> that could be. Okay, anything else about this episode? Not really. I did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it, too. And, and maybe a seven seems like it's not high enough, but let's, I'll make it a seven and a half. Okay. Okay, well, unless there's anything else we need to talk about, we can invite our listeners to join us next time. Okay. Okay, so we invite you to join us when we talk about Star Trek Strange New World Season 1, Episode 9, All Those Who Wander. That sounds good. All right, see you next week. See you then. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at Moms Going Boldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter, at Ross Bugden. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.